the galaxy burns. The heretic falls. And the emperor protects. Welcome, Imperial citizens, to the Emperor Protects. My name is Doug. Along with me, my co-host, of course, Dan. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, my friend. And you're well? I am. I am. It's been a crazy summer, but uh, or yes. winter and summer and winter again. But, <laughs> yeah, right. but right. we're trudging on. Um, I'm doing well. My wife's awesome. And uh, we're just we're pushing through. So today we are talking all about uh, another one of these founding books. One of those that gives us sort of a, a pivotal story in the Horus Heresy. And that is Fulgrim. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any like... I don't know. We'll say nostalgic thoughts about Fulgrim, seeing how it's like old enough to go to school and stuff <laughs> as a book. I think it's the thing that always we'll talk about it eventually, but the whole concept of the noise marines and using sound and stuff for some reason. When I in my early days of 40k, many many years ago, uh, that just poof, it just hit me like as a science fiction concept. And as a science person, it was like, boom, and these are the guys, you know, the Emperor's children. It also struck me as interesting about Fulgrim. We're going to talk about him today. It just, the whole story of this legion um, is, is so different, I think, this is my opinion, of the mm. other traitor legions. Mm. And so that kind of hits me whenever I hear Emperor's children, I just get these bizarre twisted thoughts in <laughs> oh wow okay <laughs> glad we got that recorded <laughs> yes of course um for me this is this is one of my earlier like introductions to warhammer actually um mm. i went straight from reading uh so i didn't understand like when i saw horus heresy series that it was like a contained thing and so i went straight from I think it was the Grey Knights Omnibus to oh. Fulgrim. <laughs> and so that was a bit of a rough ride. But uh, I yeah. it ended up being one of my favorite 40K books just because it it explained to me how and why people fall for Slanesh, which I was not understanding. Um, yeah. If you're someone who, you know, you're just getting into Warhammer, you might go ask on a forum, like, why would anyone fall for this? And you'll get like a ton of meme answers about like, oh, because we all love sex and all these kinds of things. And but the truth is, like, there's a lot of a lot of different paths that lead you down that road. And this book explores a ton of them. Yes. Um. So much so that I, me and Dan agreed to put a disclaimer at the front of this video <laughs> that this book has like eight sub stories within it. Okay. Oh, it's you're watching the entire, not just the Legion. But the entire like um, exploration fleet. What do they call those things again? Yeah, the explorator fleets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The... you're watching the entire thing fall to chaos. Um, and so you have uh, observations from human artists who are above above aboard the emperor's children ships. You have all levels of captains and lieutenants, and it's all just it's all bad. <laughs> Everything yeah. goes bad. <laughs> Much, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but uh, Dan tackled this with his normal gusto and made some incredible show notes for us. So he's gonna he's gonna take us through the path of Fulgrim, which is of course the only book we're we're sticking with today. Um, so let's kick it off here. Let's see, we got our notes. Um, do you have any preamble or anything like that you want me to? to I think s- that 
the the thing about this book is it's the story of the fall of a Primarch and the descent of a very noble legion, actually, when they started. Yes. Um, into just unspeakable corruption. This, the depth of the corruption that goes on with the Emperor's children, again, to me, is is far beyond. It's so much more uh, um, intrinsic to what they become. And the other thing I think that's interesting, again, this is my opinion, unlike the other traitor legions, I think the emperor's children just absolutely embraced the intensity of the corruption they were undergoing. Oh, yeah, they went all in immediately. (laughs) I mean, you think about, for example, you know, Korn's guys, you think about the world eaters, they really struggled with their primark going through what he did and, and, becoming what they became you think about mortarians guys these those marines didn't want to feel just unsufferable pain and become physically correct they didn't want that Mm. they never asked for that they you know once it happened it was good Uh, but in and think about the thousand sons oh my gosh talk about tragedy they never ever expected to end up you know where they did when they ended up at the end of the book on the planet of the of the sorcerers. They were like, "What? What the hell is this?" Yeah. But Emperor's children, this is this is all good, man. I want more. <laughs> yes, this was the plan. I didn't see it ending this way, but I'm really glad it did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so our tale really kind of picks up as one of these explorator fleets is moving into a system. That is controlled by a Xeno species, aliens, mm-hmm. named the Lair. Yep. Or do you want to back up before then? Yes, or? I think the Lair is it. I, one of the things I do want to talk about very briefly yes. is to kind of put into context who the Emperor's children were before Fulgrim. Oh, yes, please. Um, because as a legion, again, something very unique, they only had at one point about 200 Marines left. And think of the context of that. When you think about other legions in the heresy time frame that had tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Marines, 200 Marines, that's mm-hmm. it. That was the entire chapter. And reuniting with Fulgrim and using his gene seed was what saved this legion, which, interestingly enough, we're going to talk about a couple of nicknames here. You know, it's the whole Phoenix Rising type of yes. Of book. And so that's where Fulgrim got his nickname, the Phoenician. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but when you think about what they were, what they became, I think that's important. And the other thing that becomes is interesting is that early on, they were very much known for their diplomatic skills. And that's exactly the opposite of what they became. Yeah. Because, uh, the last thing is that they were the only legion to be allowed to wear the, you know, Imperial Aquila so prominently right in the middle of their breastplates. Yes. That's the, uh, the, the Eagle, right? Right. Yep. The Eagle. And it's, what's interesting, you know, it's consistent with their arrogance and their obsession of being the best. We're the best guys because we get to wear it in the middle. And it was just a legion wide thing for them. Not that other legions didn't have, Imperial Eagles somewhere on their kit. I mean, Garrow had the big eagle, but it was an honor. It was something that was special if you had that. Right. Uh, but 
the Emperor's Children. It was everywhere. And then the last thing I think that's important, especially with this story, is unlike a lot of the other legions, the Emperor's Children absolutely welcomed the Remembrancers. All the photographers, yes. the artists, the musicians, and the writers. And they were given access on a level far beyond any other remembrances. I mean, they were part of private ceremonies and rituals. Yep. And when you think about, though, what the Emperor's Children was, this wasn't a surprise because they wanted everybody to know. You know, they wanted the spotlight. They wanted to be, you know, out there. And this is the best way for people to know how awesome they were. Absolutely, yeah. Have the most people recording your great deeds. And then when yes. it's all over, everyone's talking about you. Who the heck's, you know, Ferris Manus? He didn't do anything. Right, right. As we're going to find out. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Borsha. So, anyway, I just thought those would be some interesting points for listeners, you know, to understand about who they were before Moving on to, and talk to us about the lair, because they are frightening. Yeah, so the lair are this very strange species of Xenos, but to call them a species is a bit odd, because as they're fighting them, a few things are going to stick out for us Warhammer, uh, we'll say, seasoned vets, as far as like you know, looking for signs of chaos. They have these long, serpent-like bodies for the most part, but they also like have different substrains of the layer will modify and change their body genetically and physically to do different things. So like there's a swimmer variant. There's one that has like wings and it's like a raptor in the sky. Um, their warrior cast has like vocal weapons where they can like scream and like emit so much sound that it hurts people. Um, all those kinds of things. So they're fighting this very exotic enemy and the planet that they're fighting on I believe it's is it this one the Coral City or am I mix, mixing my? I'm I can't remember. I think the Coral City might have been the one on Istvan uh, Three. Yeah, you're right. But but I know that it's their, okay. their capital city. Yeah, it basically it's an ocean planet with like these big platform cities that are built on, and so we meet the Emperor's children in the middle of a hyper aggressive campaign. The lair were supposed to take forever to to root out because they're so dangerous. And Fulgrim walks in, he's like, we're going to take this planet in a month. <laughs> and so um, it's a little bit garbled of a narrative because I'm looking at like all the different um, perspectives you have here. And it's like really that decision is echoed through the artists who are willing to go wanting to go down to the planet, the captains who are organizing and the ground troops. Like those are all perspectives that we have. Mm -hmm. um, but this obsession that he has of being the best is what drives him to be like we're not just going to do it we're going to do it so well that people will struggle to believe how great the emperor's children are it's that hubris um starts sinking in uh so the lair they they fight them they really actually seem to enjoy fighting them <laughs> um, probably more than you want as they're striking down the lair, uh, some of them are having, shall we say, uh, not child-appropriate responses to pain. Yes. As in they seem to be enjoying it. Um, There's a lot of adult swim in this book. There's no <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but, you know, uh, for the most part, they're like, they don't understand the lair, and they're trying to, like, figure them out in a meaningful way. At the same time... Uh, I don't know how much you want me to jump around here, but whatever you okay. You at the same time, they're also looking at them like, "Wow, these guys are like amazing fighters. How do they do that?" And they start getting this idea into their head of modifying 
themselves. And it starts with just a few people, but I'll, I'll leave that tidbit for later. <laughs> yes. Yep. Um, um, I think one of the interesting things too, is that, um, you know, Fulgrim, as you just said, we're going to wipe them out faster and better than anybody else. Yes. Well, the casualty rates were unbelievable. Yeah. And there were there was some reference to a number, and I think it was an average of like 20 Marines died per engagement. And you think about, for example, when Logan assaulted the Siren Hold, you know, that or Loken um, assaulted the Siren Hold in the one book, he suffered like zero casualties, right? Yeah. And so that this hyper aggression that um, Fulgrim uses to drive his legion resulted in a, as you said, relatively short campaign, but it was incredibly costly. And there's really nobody's even paying any attention to it. it yeah. It's just weird. It was weird. So the idea was like, he's we're going to do this unprecedented thing simply because no one else could do it, which is like, that's not a justification for, you know, I mean... We, we know that the Imperium, like, watches how long it takes for wars to happen because the word bearers got censored for going too slow. Yes. But when, when the establishment's like, okay, guys, take your time. You've got three years. And he's like, nah. <laughs> like, I don't, no, no, don't be doing that. <laughs> and, hey, you're ahead of schedule. We don't care that it costs you this many Marines. There's plenty to go. Pretty much. Pretty much is how it panned out. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the interesting things here, too, is that we end up in this book, because it's book five, I believe, of the of the actress. So it's the book right after Flight of the Eisenstein, yeah. is we end up meeting some people we've met before. We meet Saul Tarvitz, who we know from Istvan Three. We meet Lucius. Oh, God, Lucius, of course. And then mm -hmm. the most despicable person in this entire book, who is Eidolon who is like the supreme captain of the emperor's children. We meet all these people, um, some, all of them again, because we've already read or talked about all of them before. Right. This obviously is before the events of Isfahan III. Um, so uh, because Eidolon isn't enhanced yet and Tarvitz and Lucius are still two captains who get along in those things. The other character, though, Doug, that I find amazing i really i still not that i like him as a character but i think he's so cool is fabius bile who is I the agree. chief apothecary of the emperor's children and you mentioned earlier how a few of the emperor's children started kind of playing around with stuff fabius bile is the guy he like captured some of the lair he's using their parts and pieces he's creating drugs mm -hmm. from their you know body fluids and He's like, hey, you know, he sees a Marine like, hey, come over here. Try this stuff. See what it does to you. Yeah. And he's also doing the bio-enhancement thing, uh, which, again, in, in Eidolon's case, we know what that is. You know, we know that he saved uh, Garrow from that war singer by using this voice weapon that he had. Yep. Um, that Bile had um, given him. So Fabius Bile is actually... I think a very important character in terms of driving the Legion towards its corruption. Um, I would agree. And, and the weird thing is to me, Doug, is that Bile isn't corrupt. It's not like he's no. chaotic, right? He's just this mad scientist. 
That's what I was going to say is like, they not only had him, but he wasn't, uh, I want to say a dominant figure. Like he didn't drive the narrative necessarily. He was just, was kind of a background. So, but they made him so interesting that like, I want to know, I want to just walk through his lab. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think, uh, again, given the, what the, uh, descent into corruption was, he literally was the driver of this in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So, so he, he basically was like, uh, I, I kind of see him as like an evil version of from 40 K Belisarius call. Oh yeah, sure. Where it's just like, I'm going to figure out the secrets of the emperor's gene seed. That's yes! just going to happen. No one's going to stop me. I'm going to make really good Marines even better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so back to the battlefield, what was going on? I think we're we're talking about the capital city. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, we have an epic struggle where all of the companies are struggling to make a final push. Essentially, Fulgrim is like, hey, we're going to do this. We're kind of um, working towards one big final assault. One of the things they realize is like the lair seemed to be like deliberately... Um, trying to draw fire away from a singular point. Mm. And so they're looking at this and they're like, what is it? Like, is it their HQ or like, what could this mean? And Fulgrim comes to the conclusion, it's a church. And so all of these aliens are fighting to protect this church. And so that's their last stand and, and whatever. Uh, you okay if I jump into that? Oh, please. Yeah, it is. It, it, is, okay. it is central. Yes. Um when they defeat the lair, uh, one of the sub stories that comes uh, relevant is that one of the companies didn't show up on time. They were all supposed to perfectly converge on the lair in a fiery, you know, storm of the emperor's justice and everything's supposed to be perfectly timed like a show. And one of the companies didn't arrive because they just, it was an unreasonable ask. They had way too much resistance. They were never going to make it there. Um, but that becomes important because that company gets guilt shamed later into accepting some augmentations to help out. So we'll mm. get to that. Yes. Um, Fulgrim makes his way into the lair temple. There's some really cool fight scenes. I like the lair yes. as an enemy. Um, yes. And when they walk into the temple, this was a. I feel like the book spent a really good amount of time on this scene because. Yes. Everything going forward from here is the people who were in the temple and the people who weren't. Um, and that's a huge divide in characters. So the people who, say, for example, our company of heroes who was late because they had far too many people to kill on the way, they didn't experience it. So you have a whole group of captains that's like, what are you guys talking about? Um, mm. Inside the lair temple, so we'll start moving into that. They encounter a whole bunch of weird stuff. First of all, there's a big <laughs> spire in the center. It's a, a raucous of clashing, intense, like hot pink colors, basically. Pinks and purples and greens, everything. It's a riot of sound and smell, and the Emperor's children love it. Um, they just think it's like the coolest place ever. And anyone who went there, um, pretty much the like for the foreseeable future is is changed in a massive way. No, yes. no one walks out of there feeling great. <laughs> yeah, and what they saw, one of the things they saw was just this huge adult swim thing going on yeah. with the bear who are obviously 
under the influence of some kind of narcotic. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're just super drugged out of their minds and they're just, and the other thing that was, there's two other real big finds, but um, one of them is, and I love the way Graham describes this, you know, it's a multi-armed creature and he doesn't say what it is, but it's got like a bullheaded, you know, look and yeah. he's, he is clearly, because this is a meta thing, you know, he is very clearly describing a keeper of secrets. Yes. Right? And you're like, wow. Like, that is the perfect description if somebody didn't know what this thing looked like. And then they go, oh, that's what you were talking about. That's one of those in the on the, you know, cover of that box of that model. That's a keeper of secret. Yeah. yeah. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were just you know, dancing around, worshiping, doing all kinds of, like I said, adult swim stuff. So yes, yes, yes. The other piece of this is that there was this unbelievable silver sword that was yes. in the middle of this room. And, of course, weapons, <laughs> emperor's children, you know, one of their things is, uh, as a legion, you know, wanting to be better, they always try to improve their weapons or they were they had no problem taking tactics or weapons from their enemies and incorporating those things mm-hmm. into their own tactics and their own armory. And so Fulgrim sees this thing and the way I was reading this, this sword literally just compelled him to pick it up. Yep. It, and it focused on him, which I thought was interesting because there were all these other people in the room and Doug, for me, it was like interesting. Did he did this thing, and we'll talk about it very shortly. Was a demon? It was a demon possessed weapon. Did it recognize that Fulgrim was the most vulnerable to its, you know, machinations, or did he recognize? Did the demon recognize he was the strongest? So I think it's interest. I think it's the latter. Is what I think that he recognized Fulgrim as someone that. Oh yeah, I can work this guy. You know? <laughs> I, um, yeah, I'm not sure. We we learn a little yeah. bit more information about the character, we'll say, in the sword here yeah. later on. So yes. we'll revisit yeah. that. Um, but it, it's weird because you know he he feels this compulsion. Fulgrim does, but after he picks up the sword, it's like it just goes away. Like all of a sudden, it's just this beautiful weapon he's holding, and. <laughs> you very quickly, as we just talked about, realize that there's a demon possessing yep. this weapon. And it is, of course, because it's the heresy, the kind of demon that whispers in someone's ear yep. all the time to get them to do whatever they want them to do. And we've seen this many times in the in the heresy. So, Yes, and um, he takes it as his own conscience, like he's having an internal dialogue. It's just rationalizing in a way. It's so stupid, man. I know. I know you're talking you're, to yourself. You're a Primarch, man. We, do, do you not understand? I just, that's one of the things I didn't get about this book was how, when I think about how the other Primarchs responded to even real demons talking to them, you know, demons that have manifested, they're, they're very aware of what's going on. Fulgrim was just like, hey, is this voice. <laughs> he, he just, it seemed like he had no concept of what, this demonic entity was or what it was trying to do. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good point. I feel like the other ones at least understand the idea that like certain artifacts have power or, Mm -hmm. 
the warp exists and we shouldn't mess with it. I feel like that came up quite a few times in the earlier books. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So, so we, is there anything else about the temple? Because again, as you said earlier, we're going to just segue to a whole nother thing now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's all I really had for the temple. It was just, um, you know, it was an, it was an aggressive push and, uh, it defines the character. So who went to the temple and who didn't becomes important. And just really quickly, the remembrancers, the humans went to the temple as well. Yes. Not just the Marines. And that is a really important piece too, because as the Marines were affected, as you said, the humans were affected so much more deeply by this. I would say so. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) As we will find out. Yes, yes, yes. So next we segue to our buddy Ferris Manus, mm-hmm. you know, the, the primarch of the Iron Hands. And he kind of reaches out to Fulgrim for an assist. He's, he's dealing with this group of people called the Diasporax. And I, I found it interesting because we, we get this call for help. And the friendship between Fulgrim and Ferris Manus is so fascinating because it's just – they are totally dialectically opposed personality wise. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because there's two little kind of anecdotal stories that were told. Um, One is how early on in their relationship, they had this contest to see who could make a better weapon. Yes. And interestingly enough, they each made a weapon that they themselves would not be as good using. (laughs) So they're just like, hey, it's a tie. Let's just trade. Let's just exchange weapons. And I'm going, it was just weird, right? Well, but now the second. I think, oh, go ahead. I think the idea behind that, if I'm not mistaken, so someone correct me, but was that no, 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 they, no. they wanted to create the best weapon. And so to trick each other, they tried to make the weapon that they thought the other would like more. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, Ferris Manus made Fulgrim a sword beyond measure. And uh, Fulgrim made Ferris Manus a hammer. Right. Of the gods. <laughs> and then the exchange weapons. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but then there's another story about how Ferris got his nickname, which I found more fun, in that they were both in the Imperial Palace when they were installing these, I think it wasn't it, the giant space marine statues, uh, but it was some kind of huge sculptures that they were installing in the in the palace and they were both there, and of course they had totally different reactions. You know, Fulgrim, who is this lover of art and whatever else like that, um, creativity, he was just like, oh, this is so beautiful. This is amazing. And Ferris was just like, oh, this is totally worthless. Like, what's the point? Yes. And so... Like every couple <laughs> arguing at Home Depot over lawn yes. decorations. <laughs> and Fulgrim just goes... You know, you are such a gorgon that you can't appreciate mm-hmm. this stuff. But then right away when I'm re- listening to this, it's like, oh, that's it. That's his nickname. Yep. That's where he got his nickname. And it was so cool. And obviously it stuck. Uh, but I never knew until I re-listened to it. I don't remember that. Oh, and really? it was like this cool epiphany of where Ferris Man has got his name. So that I love that uh, little awesome. story. Um, yes, yes, yes. It, it was it was pretty cool, um, and just the way as you said, it's it was the whole Home Depot meme, you know, <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> you are such a whatever. Uh, 
Our lawn and, doesn't need to look pretty for the neighbors. We live here for ourselves. And you're like, oh, yeah, my God. Right. It's kind of what it is. Um, I thought as part of this whole thing that was interesting how the sword was continuing now to play mind games with Fulgrim. For example, Fulgrim, at this point, he was looking at the sword, you know, admiring it. And the gem inside the sword kind of caught his eye. And he was like, uh, you know, that gem kind of looks plain compared to the rest of the sword. And for a moment, he was like, yeah, I need to replace this gem. And all of a sudden, our little buddy, who obviously the demon was in the gem, that's where he was in the sword, is going, eh, you don't need to do that. Don't worry yeah. about that. Yep. And, and Fulgrim was like, eh, I don't know. Nah, it's fine. It looks great. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he doesn't realize he's being led by the nose. Okay, here we go again. We're Fulgrim just being totally unaware. Uh, anyway, um, where do you want to go next with this? Uh, well, let's see. Um, so this Diasporix that he helps uh, Ferris Manus hunt down, basically it's a, it's a chance to introduce us to their brotherhood and show us that mm-hmm. Fulgrim actually is really good. Like he came up with a cunning plan to hunt this spacefaring race and... Yeah, they prosecuted it. It was cool. It was a good moment of brotherhood, and everyone was having a great time. Um, let's see what happens next here. There's, and I don't know if this. I can't remember if this was earlier or later than this thing, but there's another kind of uh, uh, flashback or whatever flash to Fabius Bile again, mm-hmm. and it talks about how he literally discovered a way to bypass the pain receptors in the brain. And he has discovered a way to reroute the pain to the pleasure centers. Yes. So, you know, put your hand over the fire. Oh, that hurts. But, but he's got him thinking you put, you put your hand over the fire and it's like, Whoa, actually that feels kind of good. I'm going to take this fire out on a date. And it's so twisted. It's like, slanesh. Yes. Right. And we talked about before that he distills a drug. He starts with one, of course, there are many. And he and the thing about this drug that he distills from the lair corpses is it enhances strength. It enhances reflex reflexes, you know, so it's it's a good thing um, other than the side effects early on. But he offers it to legionnaires who are like, oh, this is awesome. Cool. And the other part of that is that I think is interesting is. All this is going on, and Fulgrim has no problem with any of it. He, no. It's like, no, this is cool. Make my guys better. We're already yeah. cool. We're already the best. We can be the bestest of best. You yeah. know, and just, yeah, it's all right. It's cool. Any other Primarch would be like, what the hell are you doing to my sons? But Fulgrim's like, no. Yep. Oh, cool. Combat drugs <laughs> are cool with me. Yeah, it's all good. Um, but what's interesting is, like, the way that that happens, and... Uh, listeners we're kind of filling in a bunch of backstories because these yeah. these yeah. lore tidbits come from a lot of different perspectives <laughs> yes yes um but one of the things i like is that you know initially he does his test on eidolon eidolon's like if you're gonna break the rules i'm gonna be the first right like i want to be the best i want to be the whatever yes. so eidolon gets that honor but then from there he starts like fulgrim starts basically sending warriors that kind of failed him in that lair attack to mm-hmm. get worked on of like, you guys need improvement, which is different than like, I'm already the best, make me better. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, 
you know, cause it's one of those things that like you can justify like, oh yeah, I, I dishonored my Primarch and this is how he says I can regain my honor. Cool. I'll do it. Whatever. But it quickly gets out of hand. They're now making all kinds of new organs. Um, yeah. Combat drugs, which is a big one. Yeah. I, it's just, just scary stuff. Uh, the other thing, just real briefly with the, as you said, we're going to be jumping around. I'm glad you gave listeners that warning ahead. Um, we talked about the fact that some of the humans, some of the remembrances that showed up in the temple. And there is one in particular that they mentioned a few times. Her name is Serena DeAngela. She is yes. an artist. And of course, the moments any human walks into this temple, they are corrupted. They're, they're done. But each one of them kind of travels a different path to corruption. Um, what's interesting about her is that the first manifestations is that she begins to incorporate body fluids into her paints. Yes. You know? Yeah. She's it's looking like, for a red to capture a sunset and then she like stabs her arm by accident. And that's a really good accident. red color. I love you. Oh know, no, it wasn't an accident at first, but, yeah. course, but I know what you mean. Yeah, and, and the others are just totally overstimulated. The morality is just ripped away. There's a musician who records the music in the temple. Um, and she begins to descend into madness. She's like, I think, wasn't she like a, a director of an orchestra? She was like a conductor or something. And yeah, so Fulgrim got all the best artists in the world. Composing <laughs> special music, you know, and uh, it's just, oh, man. It's just so Emperor's Children. This is yes, just it is. It is astoundingly Emperor's Children. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, that even the Remembrancers are part of this whole whole thing. Um, yeah. So um, we talked about Fulgrim with the voices in his head. That's going to be a continuing theme here. Um, but the Emperor's Children at this point have rejoined Ferris Manus because they had kind of gone away from him for a little while, and now they're back in the fight with the Diasporics. And Fulgrim, of course, wants to look better than his brother Ferris. And he he goes on this, like, suicide run. Mm -hmm. he, he gets on a firebird, of all things. And he's going to run it at the enemy command because his idea is, hey, I'm going to cut the head off the snake. You know, I'm going to kill the admiral in charge of everything. And he goes on this suicidal run. And the description of all this is, is very cool. Grant does such a magnificent job with it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's one firebird and the enemy fleet, these Diasprax guys, they are really good at space combat. They yes. are e the equals of space marines easily. And so they target and get him kind of bracketed in this ship. And it's about to, you know, you're about to see one of the Primarchs die. And all of a sudden, Ferris made ships intervene and kind of interpose themselves. And instead of being grateful, uh, Ferris Manus or um, Fulgrim just uses this opportunity as his brother's flagship is getting beaten to hell, not destroyed, <laughs> by the way, because we're talking about Iron Hands ships here, which are basically giant blocks of Antiman. <laughs> yeah, basically, engine, yeah. Right? It's a um, flying brick, yeah. But he, he doesn't stop. He doesn't say, thanks, brother, or whatever. He just, boom, he just keeps going. And so as a reward for his petulance, he gets to the command deck, 
and he, you know he's killing people on the way he sees that like all the crew on the command deck are dead everything's ripped up he's going whoa wait a minute and <laughs> this captain named solomon demeter has already arrived and has captured and killed all of the command crew and fulgrim is just absolutely enraged and stomps off the bridge yeah and at this point his magical sword is like hey you know all these other people are bad people that don't want you to be successful they made you look like a fool they stole your glory your mm-hmm. brother captain demeter these are all bad people and oh just the descent into madness just yeah. continues here and you have to feel so badly for these other people around him but i don't know what your thought is but he's just he has just become it's i don't know what point in the book it was Doug, but he just becomes so unaware of his surroundings and not even caring what's going on around him yeah i noticed that too like by the end of the book i i felt like i didn't see where that turn happened but it definitely did like he just becomes more and more oblivious as things go on and and i don't know what it is maybe he's just so enraptured and so into the slanesh thing that you know but but that whole piece that whole scene um with him on this run just i thought to me was like a final piece of yeah he's gone he's not going to change um scary yeah. Stuff. yeah yeah exactly at that point he's it's not about the the crusade anymore it's about fulgrim yes yes great way to put it yep um now again <laughs> whoop, change lanes <laughs> we we segue to an eldar farce here yeah we are familiar with not only in 30k, but 40k players will recognize Eldrad Uthron. Yes. Um, 40k players will recognize him as the Eldar who saved Robute Gilliman um, and got him into that suit of armor that kept him from dying. Um, other things he has done. That's the thing I think that a lot of people in 40k will recognize him as. Um, yeah, but we don't and, thank Zeno, so, you know. Of course not. We do. Of course not. Of course not. Uh, he's the one who warned Gilliman that the primordial, um, you know, enemy is not annihilator is not the ultimate enemy. You know those kind of. So he's a pretty prominent individual. But what's weird again in the story is this just pops up out like what like yeah, and he has this meeting with Fulgrim, and it's just so bizarre like there's a battle that goes on because he thinks that he can deal with fulgrim because he saw fulgrim essentially bypass all these maiden worlds that he could have destroyed and maiden worlds as we both know are very you know crucial to the eldar they they just worship these maiden worlds because they're their chance for redemption and uh but he realizes then all of a sudden why he missed the demon sword by the way eldrad missed it early on i don't get but he realizes what fulcrum is and that you know he senses the whole slanesh thing going on who are who is the ultimate evil to the eldar there's a battle uh he doesn't of course bring anywhere near enough troops to kill a primarch and like 20 of his terminator elite 
Oh, he uh, tries he, though, man. Oh, he does. He's even got he's even got a you know Eldar avatar who, by the way, <laughs> Fulgrim basically chokes this Eldar Eldar avatar out. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, it was like, a pretty dang good fight. Like what? He's a lava monster. How are you doing that? Is like I'm a Primarch and I'm cool. Exactly. Uh, and then. Basically, Fulgrim leaves. He goes back and virus bombs all the planets that he missed. Uh, and it's just it's it's interesting reading. It's mm-hmm. cool battle, as you just said. But like, if you took those pages out of the book, you wouldn't miss anything. Like, there's no impact on. T- it, again, this is IMO. You know, there's no real impact. It was. I'm lost at what this adds to the overall story. I think what it, I think the idea was like we want to have a 40k kind of presence reminder, and okay, I think Ulthwan does that. But yeah, I I agree. This is this is one that would be on the chopping block for me as an editor. Yeah, not that not that I didn't enjoy it. I think we both did. It was very cinematic and very cool. What happened and. Eldar are interesting. They're always an interesting race to have, mm-hmm. you know. And, and it's funny because when you read this book, it was written a long time ago. They're not Aldari yet, you know. So you're seeing Eldar and you're like, maybe if you're just coming to this book for the first time, listeners, and you're a 40K person, you're going, who are the Eldar? Yeah, exactly. I, I don't remember them. Like, no, they're the Eldari. They're the early version of. Yes, uh, yes. Anyway, so... um. At this point in the story, Fulgrim has absolutely gone bat crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm myself there. He is just <laughs> nuts, man. He has actually commissioned Selena DeAngela to print this or to paint this massive mural. It's just going to be many meters high and wide. And this is where you just know how loopy she has become so she is now fully incorporated all kinds of human detritus not just body fluids yeah. but you know organs and intestines and stuff into her art and what you find out about her how twisted and lost she is is she has actually used her murdered lovers are what she has used as the materials yes <laughs> Yep. And you realize in the story that many of the remembrancers, just she is a beautiful woman. And she basically seduces them, kills them, and then uh, harvests their things. Whatever they need. Yeah, and it's just like so twisted and she's, sick. She's got like drums of dead people in her room. Yes. She's having a day. Oh man! And at first you're like, "Oh, this woman, you know, is very desirable." When you when you first meet her in the story, and everybody wants to sleep with Selena. Well, if they only knew. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> right. Um, and what what happens with the sword demon now when he sees this picture and is this being made? Yeah. So at one point, the Fulgrim gets a chance to look at it. And of course, by this point, because he was in the Lair Temple, he sees it as beautiful. And it's like blood and pee and excrement all over the wall. <laughs> Roughly in the uh, the shape of a Primarch. And he loves it. Um, but one of the things that happens is 
whatever demon is in that sword kind of like projects itself onto the painting. Ah, oh, yes. And and begins kind of it kind of takes it over as like a focal point of like when you talk to me, you talk to the painting. And so Fulgrim will yell at this <laughs> painting for hours in his own room. Uh, at nothing. Just at nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Oh man. Yeah, it's uh, but but I want to say that it's fascinating the way Graham writes this and mm-hmm. it becomes compelling to read this. Like you're kind of grossed out, but you're not because it just, you want to read more about this to see how far this is going to go. I think, yep. which is interesting to me. Um, and so as grotesque and hor- horrible as this all is, it's also fascinating at the same time. And then I start asking myself like, Wait a minute. Am I becoming a Slanesh priest <laughs> that that this isn't bothering me as much anymore? I I definitely like I mean, not after this reading, but when I first read it, I was like, I want to play an Emperor's Children Army. This is the coolest <laughs> like it's one of the most succinct backstories for a chaos faction. I love it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh and so now we get to the point after this that the demon continues to work Fulgrim and he's like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to let you know in on a secret here. And Horus is considering betraying the emperor. Mm-hmm. And he's like the, the, the conversation, the way Graham writes this conversation between the demon and Fulgrim. He's like, this demon is just so cool and manipulative. It's like, you know, if that's true, if he's really doing, I, I don't know that he's doing that, I think he is, then the emperor can't be perfect because and you believe that he's perfect, right, Fulgrim? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, perfect, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? If he's perfect, why would anybody betray a perfect being? So if he's perfect, then he can't be being betrayed. But if he is being betrayed, he's not perfect. And if he's not perfect, why should you and your legion hold him as a role model? Yep. Because you're, what are you, worshipping an imperfect being? It was, it was just brilliant. <laughs> just, yeah. And I, I read that a couple times because that the logic flow that the demon was using was so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And like all of these, these Primarchs, so much of their worldview is built on something so small of like <laughs> the emperor is X. It's like, well, yes. you know, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, with the timing with this was interesting, too, because now all of a sudden Malkador, of all people, arrives on Fulgrim's flagship. And so timing wise, it's like he is sent by the emperor to talk to Fulgrim because he wants to tell him and see what's going on with Horus, wants to talk to him about Horus. Yeah, there's been some disturbing stories and inconsistencies in Horace's behavior. And you kind of think about Fulgrim going, well, wait a minute. The demon just told me, talk to me about this. And Eldred. (laughs) Yeah, and Eldred. So isn't it interesting that everybody's coming around to talk to me about Horace's betrayal? Well, (laughs) Fulgrim is kind of directed to check it out. You know, what's going on with Horace? So he takes his fleet, and he's silent running 
with his ships fully armed and ready to go to attack Horus's fleet. And he's actually considering firing on Horus's fleet at this point. And what's weird is you think about how the entire story could end right now. Yes. He could absolutely blow Horus's fleet out of space and yes. no no worse to wear, right? It just wouldn't take very long. It's all done. But he and he's considering this because he's on his command deck, but he's not wearing his demon sword. Yes. And so he's actually thinking about doing this, which would be the right thing to do, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. His insanity is a moment of clarity of like, which is weird. Yeah, right. It's like without the demon there, he's actually thinking. Yeah, a moment of clarity. He, all of this other stuff, all this corruption and this weird behavior and everything else, all these weird um, diversions and perversions they're all gone it's all been swept away yeah um but as he's about to push the button our friend eidolon arrives and what's he carrying it's the silver sword of the lair no like what (laughs) he he actually is carrying the sword yes you're joking no (laughs) and of course Everything just piles back in, and Fulgrim is like he loses <laughs> any and all desire to fire. Yep, bolts. yep. Lovely. Like, okay. Well, and it's so funny because in that scene, he's like, "I don't remember asking for the sword," and so you get this kind of point of like, "Did he do it subconsciously, or was Eidolon like did the thing whisper to Eidolon like, hey, go get me'?" <laughs> And that, oh, that's that's a good voice, but you just did that well, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it, and Eidolon, of course, is the perfect person for the sword to talk to. Oh yeah, because he's all in. Yeah, he, he's probably all in more than Fulgrim even is at this point. I would say yes. Him and Lucius are yeah. are are good to go. <laughs> They're so down with this. So that whole scene takes place, and you're going, oh shoot. We, if you're a loyalist, you're going, oh, come on, Graham. Did you have to do that? You're getting your hopes. You got my hopes up, and now, boom. <laughs> and so the result of this is that Fulgrim goes to Horus' flagship, the Ventral Spirit. Uh, yeah. Ventral Spirit. And Horus, it, it's kind of weird because Horus thinks – that Fulgrim may have arrived here on his flagship to replace him as War Master. Yes. And, wow, wherever that came from. And Horus, of course, being the master manipulator that he is at this point, because he is obviously, um, I don't know that he's fully corrupted. I don't think he is at this point. But he's definitely turned against the emperor yes and he spins this beautiful tale almost like the demon did and tells fulgrim that the emperor is intending to turn over all these worlds that our marines have conquered to administrators and pencil pushers and basically turn the legions into a police force yep yep and the way he spins this tale and tells it to fulgrim he tells Fulgrim, hey, you're if you join this, you're not joining a rebellion. You're actually joining a stand 
against a father who abandoned us. Yeah. And, and abandoned all his sons and returned to Terra and just wants to throw us all, you know, out the door. And again, the dialogue and the writing of this scene is just brilliant to me. It's just masterful. Yeah. I, and Horace does spin it as like, um, you know, the emperor's doing us a bamboozle. He's going to uh, take everything. You know, we, we were just temporary instruments. We'll be put away. Mm-hmm. Um, because he he actually hands out a, a copy of, is it Letitio Divinitatis? Yes. Which we, we, we read about in the first few books of like, these are humans who have decided of their own volition to start worshiping the emperor's deity. And so Horace finds this and is basically using it as proof of like, see, he's trying to, you know, uh, kind of infect his, his own worship inside of humanity. Mm-hmm. And it just all gets twisted and I don't know. Yeah, it's all gets messed up. Yes. It's it's beautiful. And and yes. again, both of these scenes, the manipulation of the demon, the manipulation of Horus, are brilliantly written by yep. Graham. I really, really enjoyed going back and reading it a second time because it was so compelling. Like, if I was there, I would be like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, and um, just to kind of put it in perspective of other events, like, Fulgrim was sent because, like, there was just one or two reports that like Horus was dead, <laughs> you know? Right. And it's like, well, you look pretty good for being dead. And now you're talking all kinds of weird stuff. It just, they, they set the scene very well, I think. And it's also compelling to me, Doug, that, you know, Horus actually has a good point. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm a, that's why I'm a chaos player. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. And you're going, maybe these, maybe this chaos thing isn't so bad for humanity. And I'm reading it going, I understand now the way it was written. Uh, And of course, because of the beautiful and masterful way he does this, he literally has turned Fulgrim. Fulgrim is like, I am on board, man. I understand now, brother. Ride or die. And And he sends, once he realizes he's turned him, he sends the Phoenician on a mission to try to recruit Ferris Manus. Now, this part of it to me is totally BS because there is no way that Ferris Manus, there is no way that these guys can even believe that Ferris Manus is going to turn. Right. Of all the Primarchs, maybe except for Dorn, there is no way they're going to turn Ferris Manus. This is just, <laughs> just ludicrous. But hey, you know what? It's okay. Because before... Fulgrim leaves, Horace hands him something, doesn't he? He does, yes. As a symbol of trust, Horace hands Fulgrim uh, the anatheme, or I, I always say anathema. anathema. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the audiobook version I listened to said anatheme, and I was like, that just doesn't <laughs> sound right, man. Um, but he hit it real hard. <laughs> so, yeah, of course. Uh, but yes, that is the weapon used to bring Horus down low. And so, you know, when yes. you're talking about... In the conversation of things that everyone already thinks is impossible, of like a Primarch being laid low or, you know, rebellion against the Emperor, to have physical proof that, one, my story is true, I was laid low, and like, this can kill a god. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
I don't know. It was it was a big deal. It was a big gift for him. And it's like, wait a minute. You're giving Fulgrim another demon weapon? I know. <laughs> he's already got one. I know. It's enough. And he's already over the top with one. You're giving him a second one? Uh, Dude's going to need a gun locker got... for all his demon swords. <laughs> now he's got plenty of buddies to talk to. Fulgrim does. He's oh, got yeah. plenty of people to talk to him about this whole thing. Never alone. Uh, and the other piece of this is that it drives him so far into his madness that he starts to purge his legion mm-hmm. of what he perceives as old parts of himself. That if he wants to become perfect, he needs to discard this old stuff. Yep. Because it's holding him back. Um, and we now segue to Captain Solomon Demeter, which remembers the guy who kind of upstaged him on board the diasporic ship. And he has been ordered by Fulgrim to go into and take a space station from a bunch of orcs. Yep. And for some reason, um, probably (laughs) because he's so pissed off, uh, Fulgrim perceives Demeter as a threat, which he is not, of course. But he sends him into this combat in an overextended position. Yes. He is just on his own. And interestingly enough, our buddies Saul Tarvitz and Lucius arrive and save Demeter. Um, And a Marine named Vespasian delivers the news of Demeter's rescue to Fulgrim. And Demeter is one of the few remaining Emperor's children that has not indulged. Yes. uh, In the drugs and the enhancements and all this stuff. And Vespasian obviously voices his concern to Fulgrim um, and tells him that... Uh, and Fulgrim tells Vespasian to kind of calm him down and, you know, allay his concerns that this is all part of the emperor's grand plan for the emperor's children. It's, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay, my son. And as part of it, he says, I have something I want to show you. You're right. (laughs) Come into my room of many wonders. I have a a pleasure room. (laughs) And he shows him the, I think at this point, isn't the painting finished? Yes, I believe at this point it is. Yeah, and Vespasian just sees this wall covered with body parts and entrails and blood and feces. And the painting itself looks into Vespasian's soul. Yep. And what does it see? Uh, it, it doesn't see what it wants, which is um, something to feed on. It, it's looking for something to tempt him or tear him. And it basically just like, I don't know, drifts through this dude's soul in a moment and is like, uh, there's nothing here I can corrupt. Yes. Like, oh, wow. And it, he's just too pure. And he suggests the, the demon in this picture that, hey, you know what, Fulgrim? You might want to kill this guy. Yep. And of course, Fulgrim is happy to use his new little toy the anathema to just totally almost slice yeah he like almost bisects him (laughs) yeah which is horrible um so that stuff went on and that whole scene was just horrid and horrible yeah but Uh, i didn't i guess i didn't realize like when i first read this many years ago that he did his own soft purging first like you know i don't know how successful it was but it seems like that's what he was intending to do 
Yes. And uh, I guess I just forgot about that. Yeah, it, it was it was kind of it was disturbing, and it wasn't. It, it seemed a lot more subtle, I guess, to me. That I think probably is one of the reasons we didn't realize it, because it wasn't this hard. You know, send these guys down, and we're going to virus bomb them. It was much more, much more uh, under the table, I guess. Um, so Fulgrim arrives with. So I guess we segue again because Fulgrim goes to talk to Ferris Manus and try to turn him. Well, things didn't go so well with that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I actually the way they did this, they kind of like we had that scene earlier where all the captains met as the two Primarchs oh. met. And they kind of just replay that scene. But this time, you know, half the group has a dirty secret. Um, yes. And everyone's kind of eyeing up each other. Not, I shouldn't say each other. The Emperor's children are eyeing up the uh, Iron Hands in a big yes. way. Um, what uh, what parts did you want me to hit on here? As far as uh, there's some there's some great dialogue. I really like their arguments. Um, I don't know. How about you? Yeah, it just it just the battle and everything that takes place. I mean, of course, both of the Primarchs have their terminator elite with them you know their bodyguards and all of a sudden (laughs) the fulgrim's guys just turn and literally just decapitate yeah like in one strike like the uh i don't know lord of the rings when the elves are fighting they just have that wall of like spitting blades yes yes it it just boom they're just gone Mm -hmm. and obviously Fulgrim at this point, because he is super enhanced, he's already a Primarch, he's been enhanced, and he just he just beats on Ferris Manus. Yeah, like in a mean way. <laughs> like yeah, in a real mean way. <laughs> he gets him down and all of a sudden you realize that he doesn't have a sword with him. He's not using his demon sword. And he's kind of like he's going to kill his brother. But he doesn't kill his brother. Yeah. And yeah. that was just so weird. Because he didn't have it in him. No, he just didn't. Still, he still wasn't 100% there. Yep. Um, and uh, so he leaves his brother. Uh, and back aboard the Emperor's Children flagship... <laughs> The Legion has put together their own re- recreation of the Lair Temple. Yeah, so uh, after they hang out with, uh, with Ferris Manus for a bit and, and yeah. really just kind of stir the bee's nest. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, they go have their own party. And so uh, her name is Beck Wakinska, the award-winning musician on their, on their crew, <laughs> uh, puts together a her orchestral debut after the lair temple is finally ready. And yes. so, um, the, if I'm not mistaken, this is where they put up the demonic picture of Fulgrim, like above the stage. Yes. yes. And do the whole like, you know, party and music and stuff below it. But this is where I, I think things get insane. Like this is <laughs> basically, yes. basically this lady Bequa has created, um, <clears throat> sorry, new instruments based off the layer designs. Yes. <coughs> I'm so sorry. I'm dry in my throat. 
But uh, so she makes these crazy new weapons and they're like weird backpack things that have like horns and sometimes strings and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. The music starts, the play's going awesome. Um, it's just a raucous of sounds as people are trying to leave, like they'll get killed if you try to leave the the performance too early because it's so beautiful kind of a thing. Like one guy got yes. beat down. Um, and then over time, things just kind of keep escalating and it, it ends with everybody screaming, fighting, and then demonettes are brought into the realm. Oh. <laughs> Which... Like, because it's a whole, I mean, it's essentially a giant chaos ritual, right? They were so debaucherous, mm-hmm. they tore the veil. Yes. Um, was kind of the idea I, I picked up on anyway. But yeah, so now they, now we have a chance to see like demons moving around and they just start killing everybody in the stage. Uh, mm-hmm. Space Marines rush up and grab the instruments because they can't stand to not hear the music anymore. Like, they, I want to hear it, I want to hear it. So. They start learning to play these exotic instruments that look like, I don't know, kind of weapony, mm-hmm. which we now know as the birth of the Noise Marine. Yes. Yep. Which I loved yep. when that happened. I was like, oh yes. Yeah, and they are blowing away people. They're blowing away demons with these noise weapons, and you're just going, oh my god, this is like. 30k version of uh what what's the word the the rock music that was like that you know and, and we've seen those models that people made like of kiss you know the group oh kiss. yes 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 and, and you can just imagine the four guys from kiss with these weapons black and white painted faces you, you can kind of see these marines like that just hosing down everybody with yeah. these demon guitars and oh it was just horrible horrible but (laughs) actually the whole event was a great success yes (laughs) absolutely you i mean you know when you rock so hard you rip a hole in reality that's that's always a good time oh horrible (laughs) Uh, and actually we're getting pretty close to the end here yeah actually so this is a book that i think just to kind of throw in a thought here i think it suffers from pacing Yes. Um, because they try to cram in, and like, I was looking at the audiobook times, and I was like, I only have like two hours left in this book. We mm. have to like go to a whole other planet and fight a whole other war still. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. So it definitely uh, we can do the same yada yada through a bit of it and get to the yeah the meat if you want. You're more than welcome to. Oh sure. I mean, um, so. Fulgrim at this point, his legion is corrupted. He has fully gone over to chaos. And this is where he takes his new noise Marines to Istvan to the massacre. Istvan five. Yes. Uh, And we see them full regalia and full effect as they are just blowing away loyalist Marines. And this is really also where we kind of get this, uh, individual reenactment of Ferris and Fulgrim uh, confronting each other for the last time. And uh, Fulgrim, obviously, we know that he kills Ferris with the demon weapon. And it's when he completely gives himself over to the demon because he kind of has a choice here. He's given a choice. And he's like, 
Oh yeah. Um, this and this demon, you know, has been his companion for a very long time, and he yep. trusts him, and he knows the voice, and he basically just says, "Yeah, I, I'm going. I'm giving myself up to this." And the really creepy thing at the end of this is that the demon takes Fulgrim's soul and places it in the painting of himself. Yes, which. Fulgrim still sees what he sees is this beautiful picture of himself, just this perfect human form, except except for the eyes. Yes, the eyes give it away. Oh my gosh, man! You you just see these eyes just saying and screaming, "Help!" me yep yep help me please when you look at this picture um and oh god how horrific yeah and i actually i do want to have an episode talking specifically about uh istvan five because i think it's i mean it's clearly one of the most important moments but this is um along this way eidolon took half the forces of the loyalist and went to Istvan three, which is where those books happen. And that's how we meet the emperor's children there. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> Fulgrim is then sidelined because he failed to get Ferris Manus and is like, you're going to go set up and dig ditches on Istvan five. And he's like, that's not work befitting a glorious person like me. <laughs> yes. Yes. Gets all, gets all whiny about it. But uh, I just want to put that in there. That might be a good bonus episode or something like that. that you can do. So. Um, yeah, because a lot of the other Primark works tie into this. Like, look at the uh, the first Heretic. You know, we end up on Istvan Five. Yep, and we see when the Galvorback become manifested. Yes, um, yeah. Well, yeah. and the, and then just the whole ebb and flow of the battle. There's more betrayal and all kinds of stuff. There's yes. so cool. It. I think that's a great idea. So that's kind of the end of. Uh, you know, one of the things, a classic story I, I want to tie in real quick is uh, there's a story called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Yes, of course. And, and if anybody hasn't read it, you really should, because it's a very fascinating book on the human soul and, and what does that mean and, and who are you really? Who Who is behind the, the person we see? This reminded me so much of that. Mm-hmm. Because Dorian Gray's soul was in the picture, it, and it was a picture of his soul um, and what he was, and this made me think about that. Oh yeah, um, when I saw that that transformation of Fulgrim being trapped in there. Well, and there's so many parallels, right? Like of just oh, sure. the excesses, and mm. yeah, there's all kinds of stuff there with uh, Dorian Gray. <laughs> Um, as far as like wrapping up the story, yes, kind of in my world, it kind of yada 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 is where it's like, so we finished the Istvan fight, which of course we just said we'll cover separately. Um, and then obviously the, the dark mechanicum starts picking up all the leftover war machines. We got to get these bad boys back over to, uh, headed towards Terra. And what else happens here? Um, the, the, all the Primarchs from the Traders, they stand up on a plinth and basically have a little uh, mini Ulanor. <laughs> yes. Where, where all the leaders get to stand on a plinth and talk about how great they are and celebrate their warriors. And 
Um, what else? Was there uh, something else you were missing? I mean, they kind of give like. No, I, I think that was it. I, yeah. you know, there there are other pieces, but I think we hit the the main points here. Sweet. Yes. Um, this was a hard book to cover just because of, of how much it darts around, not just through time, but perspectives. Mm-hmm. But it is, I mean, I'm telling your listeners, like, you know, we're going to read ones that are not as popular. Probably the Alpha Legion one being the next one that we do. Yes. Um, yep. Yep. But uh, this is one that, like, I, I just really implore you to go pick up and read. It's, it's so interesting. Yep. And even if you don't like emperor's children or, or fulgrim i think it does a great job of just bringing events moving stuff forward and and you know playing with stuff that we've heard before and then a few things we haven't and no i i think that's a really important point is that it also moves us through points in the heresy and it brings pieces of the heresy into clarity that yes. we didn't have yes uh, and and answers some questions and um yeah, so I think it's important from a, a a wider context of of the story of its uh, the heresy itself. Yeah, yeah, totes. So um, as we just spoiled, we're going to be doing Legion next, which is all about the Alpha Legion, mm-hmm. um, specifically how they engage worlds and how they recruit and all that kind of stuff. So, yep. and um, one of the things we're introduced to as well is the concept of. Um, uh, how I say that we're going to have to edit this um, uh-huh. is um, perpetuals. The concept of perpetuals. Oh sure, uh, yeah. Who are humans who never die essentially, um, but that's again a, a thing that's introduced here that we really haven't seen before. So um, yeah, it's very important. Absolutely. So yeah, uh, we'll be covering all that here pretty soon, and I invite you to uh, drag out your books and join us. Uh, Dan, do you have any last thoughts for us today? No, I, I just I think again there are some books we're going to cover that aren't on the you know <laughs> aren't on the main marquee. Yeah. But but to your point, they are important books to read to understand better uh, not only individual legions and primarchs but the the heresy as well. Yeah, and, and you know, hey, nothing else. Uh, you can listen to us instead of reading the books you don't want and you'll get the broad strokes so there you know you go. <laughs> excellent <laughs> awesome well thank you all so much friends for hanging out with us and we will catch you next time until then the emperor protects